I'm a rambling grand with synchronicities all over the web. And Darren is skeptical about everyone and don't believe it yet. Okay, guys, welcome to a special bonus edition of the Grime America show. Uh, we're sitting on some extra content and finding a tough way to squeeze it in, so we figured we'd fire it off to you guys. Yeah, man, no, uh, none of our rambling, gram intro, laziness uh, shit going on today. Uh, this is it. This is the bonus. So for our first half, we're going to have uh, Judith Very Baker and her book called David Ferry, Mafia Pilot Participant in Anti-Castro Bioweapon Plot, friend of Lee Harvey Oswald and key to the JFK assassination. She's been uh, all over the globe on radio shows, so people will probably be familiar with her. That's uh, first half. Yeah. And then that was pretty pretty interesting chat on JFK. Yeah, it was Crazy. fun. It was a good one. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, we were, John... Yeah, we were ill-prepared, to say the least. Yeah, I've never been much of a JFK guy, but I wanted to kind of... <laughs> Learn a little bit more about it. So, yeah, that's almost a bit of a too big of a conspiracy for me. It's too muddy. Too it's like Roswell. They're so muddy. Yeah, who knows? Anyways. You know something fucked up happened. Oh, yeah, totally. It's more about UFOs and the, and the suppression of alien technology. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyways, and then the second half, we've got John Moser, MD, whose book is called uh, Super Civilization, Survival in the Area in the era of human versus human. And that one, uh, that was another good chat too, about, uh, kind of a global, like the solution being a global yeah, he's pro new world order, basically. Well, but no, no, not new world order and it's negative connotations, but saying that we need a new world order in a positive way in order to solve a lot of the human problems. And mainly I, climate change. No, it wasn't mainly climate change. Anyways, that was part of it, but I do agree with a lot of it. It's a pretty cool concept. Or see, do yeah. <laughs> what? Nothing. Ugh. Nothing. Nothing. So, anyways, uh, you know, the next episode we pop out, we'll have some uh, feedback in the UFO quote and synchronicities and uh, the usual, the usual banter. This uh, one's just cut and dry. A couple interviews for you guys, yeah, because we love you. Um, but having said that, it would be yeah, nice to some buck. pay for our expenses because <laughs> we do have that extra content has extra bandwidth and we need to, uh, you know, we need a few expenses here, right? Yeah, if to, all to you guys give us a running. buck for this episode, we'll build a pair of bills for like three months. Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, uh, there's some, a lot of ways to donate to the show to help us out. You can, uh, you can participate in the 50, 50 money bomb. You don't even have to to pay to to get in there you can send a postcard to the p.o box it's on the website and also get an email from darren a grand america email address if address. you subscribe not get an email from you yeah i guess you would send them an email but you could couple it takes a couple get your emails own address yeah. right and that would be for what five bucks a month or something subscription gets you that yeah 25 bucks gets you a t-shirt i got some of those left i'll send you one of those a pretty cool t-shirt there's a picture of it on the website isn't there Somewhere? Uh, Twitter. Twitter. Somewhere on Twitter. So at Grimerica shows us somewhere in at Grimerica. We're not really, we're not really ready to put them on the website. Hashtag t-shirt? No, hashtag. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can leave us a voicemail right on the front page there. 
Yeah. Just click on the button, leave us a voicemail, send Graham some spam. Yeah. As in synchronicities, shit out of grams. psychedelic or altered states experiences, experiences with the oneness of the universe is, is cool. Feedback. I think that's about it. Is eh? that about and it for cash. the housekeeping? Yeah. Yeah. Just, just send your cash. <laughs> I know a lot of people want to send blankets or water. Just send your cash. One of the things that uh, President I'll do is to make sure your money is spent wisely. Secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. For we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covet means for expanding its sphere of influence, on infiltration instead of invasion, on subversion instead of elections, on intimidation instead of free choice. It is a system which has conscripted vast human and material resources into the building of a tightly knit, highly efficient machine that combines military, diplomatic, intelligence, economic, scientific, and political operations. Its preparations are concealed, not published. Its mistakes are buried, not headlined. Its dissenters are silenced, not praised. No expenditure is questioned, no secret is revealed. Okay, guys, in uh, Grammarica tonight, we're going to be talking uh, a little bit of JFK. I think this is the first time we've we've gone this road in Grammarica uh, with with Mrs. Miss Judith V. Baker. But first, uh, Mrs. I guess. But first, uh, Graham, how's it going, buddy? Hey, not too bad. Not too bad. Second half of the doubleheader. How are you holding up? Yeah, good. Yeah, very good. Yeah, we are. Ha- some of our listeners will be f- familiar with, uh, you know, the conspiracies around JFK. I mean, I, we like conspiracies here. We haven't really talked much about JFK. So we're, we're glad to have uh, Judith Ferry Baker here with us. She's, um, she's uh, written a book called Me and Lee. Uh, it's about her, her uh, love affair with uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. And she's got a new book out that uh, is very, very interesting here. Let me just get to the to the title of this. It's quite a title. <laughs> She's uh, it's called David Ferry, mafia pilot, participant in the anti Castro bioweapon plot, friend of Lee Harvey Oswald, and key to the JFK assassination. Now, uh, Judith's an artist, writer, poet, and social scientist, and she's uh, she's written these two books about the JFK assassination. So we are 
Really looking forward to hearing some of the inside scoop on this. So welcome to Grimerica, Judith. Well, hello. Thank you. <laughs> so, D Darren, you're more of a JFK fan, fan than me here. So can you can you describe a little bit about uh, about the genesis of the second book here? Judith? Oh, Judith. Okay, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, here's the thing. A lot of people may have remembered seeing David Ferry in the film JFK, where David is telling them he's become the number one suspect. His name has gotten the paper, and he calls uh, Lou Ivins uh, in the district attorney office, and he says, what have you done? They're going to kill me. Now, earlier uh, in 63, uh, they had brought David Ferry in for questioning, and uh, he said he'd gone off into, you know, a big thunderstorm, gone out to go goose hunting, or maybe it was just to um, go ice skating. And this is the night of the assassination. Of course, you'll find out the truth in the book. David Ferry, mafia pilot. Now, at this time when Dave calls, and this is 67, Garrison has made him the number one suspect in the investigation. He says, they're going to kill me. Five days later, he's dead. Huh. And of course, they say it's natural causes, right? <clears throat> He's 48 years old, you know. Uh, he was my friend. And, uh, you know, I really did want to uh, explain what he was like and, and why he was considered a suspect and why he had to die, just like Lee had to die. And uh, these were my friends. We were working on an anti-caster project together. and. In the book, me and Leah, we I talk extensively about uh, what we tried to accomplish there, and how Lee eventually was framed uh, when he tried to really do what he could to stop the assassination. For example, Lee was part of an abort team. When I told that to Jim Mars in 1999, when I first spoke out, I mean, he was astonished because nobody had ever mentioned an abort team that was going to try and help save Kennedy's life, hmm. except one person. That person was Robert Tosh Plumley. He is a CIA contract pilot, and um, he's a reputable witness. In fact, he just recently gave testimony to a congressional hearing. He's done many of these testimonies over the years uh, concerning CIA act activities, especially illegal ones. And uh, this man has come forth and said, yes, he was part of an abort team. And now he spoke out recently. I mean, I said that in 1999. And uh, Mr. Plumley has come out uh, on the 22nd of November this year, stood before the JFK attendee uh, conference attendees that we mm -hmm. had in Dallas. And he stated that Lee was a member of that abort team. So I have corroboration, but I have corroboration on many fronts. And people do not, I used to get a lot of uh, hassle and, you know, problems and criticism it doesn't happen anymore because the book's been out long enough, me and Lee. And now, of course, David Ferry. So we, I saved everything. I, you would, too, if you were involved in a project that was historic. And in my case, we were attempting to kill Fidel Castro. Many attempts were made on him. We now know. Uh, Lee was involved in that, and he pretended to be pro-Castro so he could be help, uh, helpful in penetrating perhaps into Cuba try to deliver this biological weapon. The entire story is, it reads like something like you could make a movie out of. In fact, that may happen. Yeah. I was just going to say, maybe that'll happen. Yeah. It, it surely could. 
So a quick question here is, is was David Ferry and Lee both part of the abort team apparently? Well, David Ferry, actually what happened, uh, he was with the civil air patrol and he had trained lots of young men. Some of them were Cubans insurgents who were trying to uh, get rid of Castro. And, uh, during the Bay of Pigs, some of them were um, arrested and, and uh, tortured by Castro. One, at least one of them died. It made uh, David Ferry very angry, very, very angry at Kennedy. He was sure that because Kennedy took the blame. Now, Dave was an Irish Catholic, just like Kennedy. He had voted for him, but now he was proclaiming his anger and at that time, Dave was not only a gifted pilot and a man who knew French, German, Spanish, um, you know, Italian and English. He was very, very good in Spanish, in all these languages. He knew ancient Greek and wanted to be a priest. He was now a, a well-known pilot working for Eastern Airlines. And he was making these trips between New Orleans and Dallas and Houston, all these big cities in Texas, three times a week for Eastern Airlines. Hmm. He is a gifted speaker, and he speaks before a group of 70 retired military officers. It's their first meeting, and he's so such a popular speaker, David Ferry is, that they invite him to open their very first meeting with a speech. And during that speech, David Ferry erupts with fury against Kennedy and says he ought to be shot. They made him get off the stage. But before that, at, right after that, when the meeting was uh, ended, some of these officers came around to him and said, Hey, Dave, we like what you said. We feel the same way. Dave found himself he could be useful to these men who were working with people in Texas. Turned out there were a lot of people who didn't like JFK and who wanted to kill him. And as Dave learned more information, he kept saying he hated Kennedy. But guess what? He had found out a lot more about the whole situation about the Bay of Pigs. Learned that, of course, Richard Nixon had been in charge of this. Kennedy had only been in office about three months. It wasn't really Kennedy's fault what happened. This was due to treachery, absolute treachery on the parts of CIA and of the military uh, side of things. Now David Ferry is deep into there. Some of these people are serious. And Dave is not going to blow his cover and say, oh, now I don't believe it anymore. I don't, I think Kennedy's a great guy now. No, he kept quiet. He learned things. And guess who's his good friend is David, David Ferry's friend, Lee Oswald, who gets information. He sends information on eventually to um, the FBI, but it's it's not going to do any good because the FBI was too close into this project, too. And we know that because J. Edgar Hoover, the same day that Kennedy was shot, same day, only about four and a half hours after Lee Oswald was arrested, we have a very interesting memo that uh, it, it, we, we can find in, in the records. And it says that Lee Oswald, you know, who has just been arrested, uh, the FBI agents in Dallas are asking Hoover, shouldn't we look at other people? After all, you had wanted for trees and posters posted all over. You had um, some radical groups who were saying they hated Kennedy, and they're all there in Dallas. Hoover says, no, we have our man. Don't look anywhere else. And this was before any evidence ever reached FBI labs. 
they, they didn't, they, they, I mean, this is just a few hours after Lee Oswald is arrested. Why would J. Edgar Hoover feel like that? Well, we know he's good friends with Lyndon Johnson, lived across the street from him for 30 years. He is a real close pal. And most important, in a couple of years, the Kennedy brothers would have made him retire. He's going to turn 70. And guess what? Lyndon Johnson made him director for life. You have all this stuff going on behind the scenes. So did you say that you don't think Hoover wanted to retire at the time? Is that? Well, no, no. Hoover was a megalomaniac who, well, let's put it this way. Everybody called him Mrs. Hoover, who knew the truth. <laughs> yeah, Mrs. Hoover had his problems with Clyde Tolson, his uh, uh, Tolson, his um, his second in command, in that uh, they were caught on film. Mafia had those photographs. The last thing. Uh, that Hoover wanted was any of that to get out. So he actually pretended there wasn't any, you know, nationwide organized crime groups. Carlos Marcello was just a tomato salesman. I mean, that's a godfather of New Orleans who had a large plantation out with swamps in it where you could find skeletons with their feet, you know, encased in cement. Yeah. Darren, you got a question there? So here, I got a question. Yeah, I was wondering, like, how much of it also had to do with, like, um, were they trying, like, they were trying to, they really didn't want it to seem like Russia had anything to do with it? Like, how much did that play into it? Well, what we do know, of course, is that Lee Oswald was a fake defector to Russia. And that's important to understand, that when Lee Oswald stood in Moscow's U.S. embassy, they know it's bugged. And he's a young man. By the way, he's only 19 years old. He says he slaps down his passport, says, I'm going to tell the Russians everything I know, and I'm going to renounce my citizenship. Fact of the matter is this. The place was bugged. Lee Oswald never signed any paper saying that he was going to renounce anything. And they kept his passport for him. And almost three years later, Lee Oswald comes back picks up his passport, has a wife and daughter. They give him a State Department loan to come home on, and nobody arrests him, even though they had to change all the codes for the U-2. Uh, uh, that, that was a spy plane. Lee had all the information on it and uh, apparently gave it to the Soviets, but there are many reasons why he did that, and you'll find that in the book, Me and Lee. Mm -hmm. Lee also gets his passport. When he makes, uh, when he's in New Orleans, his past, old passport has Soviet Union stamped all over it. You know, it's not a great idea, is it? Not in the height of the Cold War. So he wants a fresh passport. He makes an application for the passport. In 24 hours, he gets his new passport. And I met the man who did it. He was a customs officer. His name was Charles Thomas. <coughs> and we have uh, his whole family. I was able to show them what I knew about Charles Thomas, how he posed, uh, uh, used the name Arthur Young, and, you know, expedited that passport along with a stack of others so it wouldn't look so obvious in just 24 hours. Now, that passport application that Lee made out, it said that he intended to go back to the Soviet Union. He intended to go back to Cuba. That's like today, somebody saying they intend to go to Iran. They intend to, to go to um, uh the Taliban, you know, to <laughs> on a passport application, he gets it in 24 hours. That's on the record, people. It's mm -hmm. on the record. 
Oswald was one of ours. He was trained by the Office of Naval Intelligence, and he was borrowed by the CIA. We have a lot of records uh, that have been ignored. Of course, the Warren Commission, you have to understand that that's an obsolete uh, pile of, well, I don't want to call it junk exactly, but it's 26 volumes filled with such interesting things as a study of Jack Ruby's mother's teeth. But they don't have David Ferry in it. Yeah, they don't have Guy Bannister. you know, interviewed in it. They don't have the key players that Jim Garrison brought to the fore. And Jim Garrison did his very best. He tried to even arrest some of these people. There are a lot of things he could not do. But I want to tell you, I'm very proud of what Garrison did do because he got a lot of the facts out and saved many records. And of course, um, Lee Oswald had nothing to do with the assassination as far as uh, participating in it, except that he tried to save Kennedy's life. He sent a telex on Sunday before the assassination. The telex is very poorly written because Lee had dyslexia. Even though he was gifted in languages and could speak like Russian just uh, excellently, and he knew Japanese and so on, nevertheless, as far as uh, actually writing these things, not so good. And so you have the word like assassination instead of assassination. And a right wing group is going to go and assassinate, you know, the president. You see what I mean? So you have all that going on. Yeah. You have Lee Oswald also. In 1999, I told uh, reporters and uh, researchers Lee Oswald was part of an abort team. And, yeah, that this abort team, Tosh Plumley uh, himself, the, the CIA uh, contract pilot I told you about, stood and told us the truth this year, but there's more. In 1999, I also said Lee told me he had tried, he believed he saved Kennedy's life a couple of weeks earlier. Now, I talked to him only 37 and a half hours before the assassination. And when he told me this, and he knew he was under suspicion because of what he'd done. Of course, you know, they murdered Lee Oswald uh, in right in front of the whole world. Uh, in front of 70 Dallas police that shot him dead that, I mean, they couldn't keep him alive. I mean, he couldn't go to trial because a lot of things would have come out too much on Lee Oswald. But Lee, when he said to me, I believe I saved Kennedy's life. And I told people that in 1999, I mean, that was hard for people to swallow. But now we have Abraham Bolden who has come forth. Abraham lives in Chicago. He's a former secret service agent. He was, Selected by Kennedy himself as the first black Secret Service agent who was on the Kennedy detail and protected Kennedy. Then he got, um, you know, rotated out. He was in Chicago when he was present when a telephone call came from the FBI to the Secret Service's main office there in Chicago, at which time the FBI told Secret Service, stand down. Kennedy is not coming to Chicago. We stopped him from getting on the plane because we have. Uh, arrested armed men who were going to kill him, you know, the assassination plot. And the man who gave us that information, his name was Lee. Well, that was Lee Oswald. So we have many more um, pieces of evidence, things that I've told people that are now coming to pass. They're finding out that they really did occur and more witnesses have come forth. The Warren Commission report is out of date. That thing was only compiled in 10 months. And a lot of the main characters by then were dead 
or they were intimidated into silence. For example, in 1964, July 21st, the day the Warren Commission came to get testimonies in New Orleans, that's when Dr. Mary Sherman, who was involved in our project and knew a lot and would have talked, no doubt, would have talked to the Warren Commission. She is front page news as a disgusting and terrible, horrific murder. Her right arm was gone, for example. She had been burned and stabbed. And uh, the month before her, it was Guy Bannister. You see him in the movie JFK. He's the one that pistol whips uh, Jack Martin uh, for stealing some files. Mm. All of these things that happened. Yeah. So Guy Bannister was found dead the month before. And the month before him, Bannister's partner was blown up in a plane. So we can go back. We can almost everybody I worked with died. They were murdered. So can I go, Darren, Darren, you, you asked about the Russian thing again, right? So Lee Harvey. Yeah, well, the Russians, so yeah, they weren't really involved in any of this. The last thing they wanted was to kill Kennedy. I mean, Kennedy was the one that was uh, trying to work with Khrushchev, after all. Same thing for Castro. Castro, the last thing Castro would have wanted is Kennedy, who stopped the generals from, after all, bombing Havana, Cuba. Yeah. Huh. So, Darren, did you see something recently, though, about about this that kind of changed your mind about the Kennedy thing? I'm just trying to figure out where Darren was coming uh, from. No, the no, this, this, this has been accumulating a long time. It's just that the official version ignores these things. They sent, they simply ignore them. Uh-huh. One of the most important um, uh, items, for example, showing uh, Lee Oswald's innocence is right in front of our face. It's been there for 40 years, 50 right. years, it, what it is. The rifles, the rifle that's in the National Archives, you can look at it, go over there and look and go into Maryland and go look at it. It shows the sling mount. The sling mount is is on the rifle. That's where the sling is connected to the rifle. Mm -hmm. Sling mount is on the side of the rifle, on, you know, on the side, bolted in. You can see it. You go and look at the backyard photos that are supposed to show Lee Oswald with his same rifle. And that there, the sling mount is underneath. The, the mount is there. Yeah. I mean, what? Did they go and redrill the holes? Uh, nobody does that. Two different rifles. All along, you see all kinds of planted. Let me show you another thing. The blanket that the rifle was supposed to be wrapped in. Very interesting. It was, it was his little daughter's favorite blanket. Supposedly was on the floor in the garage for two months. In other words, Lee Oswald did no target practice or anything with it, the, the uh, rifle is supposed to be stuck in this, um, you know, wrapped up in this blanket. But it, guess what? The blanket itself, even though it was supposed to have been on the floor in the garage, it was dirty. The floor was dirty and it, they said it was stepped on. There's not even one speck of dirt on that blanket. On top of that blanket itself was tied up on both ends and we have testimony it was tied up with granny knots. Now, guys, you know the difference between a reef knot and a granny knot? No. Nope. Well, I'll tell you, a Marine does. Lee Oswald was a Marine. He had to take courses and ropes. That's what they do in the Navy and in the Marines. Mm-hmm. He had to take courses in tying good knots. A reef knot is a correct knot. A granny knot is the kind that women make in little kids' shoes. Laces are always running loose because it's an improper knot. But these were tied with granny knots. Lee Oswald didn't use granny knots. I know how he tied his knots. You have all this stuff that's uh, 
set in there. You have a, this uh, imperial reflex camera that's supposed to have taken all the photographs, the backyard photos. When Marina Osmo was asked, did you take the photos with this? She said, oh, yes. He said, well, where, how did you hold it? She said, well, I held it up to my eyes. You know, how you do. But that's not how you did it with this cheap imperial reflex camera. You had to hold it at the waist. Then she said, well, I did. I took those two photos. And then they said, well, did you know there was a third photo? Oh, I must have taken three. Then George DeMorenshill and his wife said they found a fourth photo. Oh, she must have taken four. Finally, we have um, Roscoe White. He was a retired. He was a dead by then policeman. They found in his effects a, a fifth backyard photo. Now she has to say that she had taken five. But she only remembered, well, she only remembered one to start with. And so we have this going on. Why is the Imperial Reflex camera important? I'll tell you another reason. Lee had some uh, Suera camp, uh, camera that he brought back from the USSR. I saw it myself. It was an excellent camera. And Akira, he had a camera that could take three-dimensional photographs, 3D. Had two lenses, huh. you know, separate from each other. And he, yeah, he could do that. George de Mornschild, uh is on record. This was his handler saying that, that Lee would process his own photos and he put them on the wall. He could blow them up. They have such good cameras. So why would he use a cheap camera with a plastic lens? And by the way, the backyard photos were not developed in a lab like Lee would have. They were developed in a store. And uh, there's more. The, the photos themselves that are supposed to have come from this camera, they couldn't find the camera. I mean, they couldn't. People were saying, well, where is this camera? And then you see all these nice cameras that Lee had. And he also had a Minox. It was smaller than a Milky Way candy bar. It was just as miniaturized as you can imagine. It had government issue uh, serial number. It was not a, a civilian issue serial number. And there was Minox film and everything. This is what spies used. Lee had a pedometer. He had a telescope. He had disappearing ink. He had all these things. They're all listed. You can see them for yourself. What's interesting, again, about this, this um, imperial reflex camera is that Robert Oswald, who had always been saying, oh, Lee did not kill uh, Kennedy. He's my brother. He wouldn't do such a thing. They've got a, they've, they uh, followed him and Marina out to the graveyard. From a distance, it looks like they're kissing. But what probably happened is Marina started crying. Robert looks like he put his arms around her to comfort her. They got the photos. And now all of a sudden, Robert is saying, because these look compromising, these photos look compromising. He says, all of a sudden, he's saying, my brother killed Kennedy. My brother killed Kennedy. Huh. And then he says, I, yeah. And then it's he who goes to the Payne garage. Get this. The police have been through that garage upside down and backward, hunting for everything. Even find Lee's flip-flops. You know, they find everything. Somehow, Robert Oswald is able to find the backyard photo camera, the camera, this imperial reflex camera. He finds it in the garage, something the police missed, this big, clunky <laughs> camera. And he says, aha, this is what Lee gave me when he went to the USSR. Hmm. He said he, and when he came back, he asked me, he wanted it back. Now, why would Lee want a cruddy camera like that back when he had these excellent cameras? Well, I'll tell you something else. I have in my possession, it's called Relic Number 77. Relic Number 77 is one quarter of a stamp. Robert Oswald, for years, has been cutting up 
Lee Oswald's stamp collection into four pieces for each stamp and selling them. I have number 77 that a friend bought for me. In other words, he's trying to tell us that Lee Oswald, when he came back from the USSR with his nice cameras, wanted this cruddy plastic piece of junk back that you can't even have it. Couldn't, uh, you couldn't even put it up to your face to, to, to take pictures with. You have to hold it at your waist. He wanted that camera back, but he did not want back his beautiful stamp collection. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. I remember Lee Oswald I, was framed. If I remember correctly, they like found the gun and the everything in like just a matter of minutes, too. It seemed kind of fishy. Well, sure. I mean, people, if we look at our witnesses, we have like some 85 or 86 witnesses saying they heard, I mean, I, I'm not going to say the number. Lots of witnesses said they heard a shot that came from the grassy knoll. They fall down, you know, you can see the pictures there. Uh, some of them are flat on the grass because they, the bullet whistled past their ears. And uh, they're trying to say, and you don't hear about the grassy knoll from the uh, Warren Commission. They only talk about the Texas School Book Depository. Yet the first shot that was fired, not one, when the first shot is fired and everybody hears it, not one soul looks up at the Texas School Book Depository. You have a, it's called the Alton's Six Photo. All the agents are either looking straight ahead or looking behind. Nobody's looking up at the sixth floor window, not a one of them. We also have something very interesting. This is for people who don't understand. They've got to know what's in the Warren Commission report. This is the 50th anniversary. So that's why I'm focusing on that. There is a photograph that's supposed to prove that Lee Oswald shot from the sixth floor window of the Texas School Book Depository. Mm -hmm. which, yes. Yeah. And here's the proof. They could not do the shot from the window because the boxes were too close. And if they turned to get the angle right, it hit the the rifle would hit the wall. It hit a pipe on the wall. Uh, they'd have to open the window more. So they couldn't go and stage any of the shots from that window. You know what they did? They built a turret. They built a tower outside of the Texas School Book Depository in the street. We have the photograph. This is to prove that Lee Oswald shot from the sixth floor. It's in the street. It is 30 feet lower than the sixth floor window. Yes, friends, 30 feet lower. What, what did you mean and by here, the boxes? I think they needed that. I mean, it had, oh, it had I, mean, I mean, this tower that they built was 30 feet lower than the sixth floor window from which they said Lee Oswald shot. They got their experts in this tower that's in the street shooting at a stable. It was a unmoving object. It's the car with, you know, paper figures in it, not moving. And it took him forever to get some shots off to that they used this 30 feet lower than the window out in the street because they couldn't shoot from the window the only pictures you show that they show of them shooting from the window is when they move all the boxes they couldn't do it with the boxes there that's why you never see reconstructions with the boxes behind people when they're shooting they can't make the shot huh. they can't yeah so it's 30 feet lower it actually says this proves oswald shot from the sixth floor window right in the Warren Commission, 26 volumes. So, Judith, if, if we were, if I didn't know, if I wasn't tainted by the mainstream view of the JFK assassination, right? right? Like, if I didn't know really 
what had happened and what was going on. How would you explain that to somebody? Like what happened there? Like who, who is responsible then? And like, what's your theory on the, on right. the big, on the big picture well, kind of thing? I, I, well, I would say this, first of all, I want you to go and look on YouTube and look at president Johnson. I should say vice president, but you'll soon be president, vice president Johnson. We're going to look at him just for a minute that we have Phil Nelson. We have, um, Jerome Corsi, and we have um, others who have written books about complicity on Johnson's part. Why do we mention this? You can see the films and still photos taken. You see Lady Bird and Lyndon Johnson. They're in a bright blue car. They're not in the dark cars the other ones are in. It's, I call it the don't shoot at me car, all right? It's bright blue, right? This don't shoot at me car, you can see them. As it turns the corner and before any shots are fired, all of a sudden you can't see Lyndon Johnson anymore. You can't see him all the way through Dealey Plaza as the shots are being fired. Oh, he doesn't pull Lady Bird down. I guess it doesn't matter if her head gets shot off. It's called Johnson Duck, LBJ Duck. That's what he did. Then we have another wonderful photo. It is inside Air Force One. Now imagine if you thought that if you Linda Johnson is not supposed to know who shot Kennedy. He's supposed to be worried. It could have been from the Cubans. It could have been from the Russians, right? Yeah. Right? Or it could, could have been about the UFO secret. Who knows? Right. But why then would he sit on the tarmac, get into inside Kennedy's plane, and sit there and wait half an hour for the judge to come and swear him as in as president? Huh. But he waits. He's not afraid. He places his hand on, what does he place his hand on, my friends? The Bible? No, it wasn't. He raided Kennedy's bedroom there on the plane. He found a black book he thought was a Bible. It was Kennedy's prayer missile for Roman Catholic mass missile. He uses this, the man's so profane he didn't know what a Bible looked like. So he uses this to be sworn in on. Now there's this very interesting photo. You can see it on the internet. It's called Johnson says the wink w-i-n-k what are we talking about we're talking about lyndon johnson beside him stands jackie kennedy with this ghastly expression on her face of shock and he's has her there like a trophy come here come here baby we got to put you in the picture here right swearing himself in next ladybirds next to him you see johnson right after he's been sworn in he turns his head he's looking at a man who's winking at him the name of the man Albert Thomas. Now, who is Albert Thomas? Back in March, April, somewhere in there, Lyndon Johnson and his friends say to Kennedy, we have got to get you to Texas because Albert Thomas is ill. We're going to have a nice meal for him, you know, a tribute dinner. We need you to be there. Soon, that's in Houston. Soon they add Dallas. And right back there, we now have Albert Thomas winking at President Johnson, the new president in Air Force One. Albert Thomas, he couldn't have been too sick because he lived two more years working as an aide for Lyndon Johnson. So so that doesn't necessarily mean that Lyndon Johnson was pulling the strings, but that he was complicit, right? He so does said, it go abo above him, yeah. or do you think that he was actually responsible? Well, let's put it this way. It's the very same day that Kennedy was shot. This is the 22nd of November. A congressional hearing was going on where Kennedy uh, would have been interested in hearing about what the evidence was produced because the evidence was 
being produced that Lyndon Johnson had received huge bribes and he was implicated in the Bobby Baker scandal. Talking about mafia bribes, we're talking about big bribes, enough that Johnson would have been censured. He would have been removed from his position as vice president. We have enough records to show that he would have gone to prison. Lyndon Johnson had the choice of becoming president of the United States, the most powerful man in the world, for going to prison. I don't think it was really hard for him to decide that he would go along with any kind of plan to get rid of John F. Kennedy on the same day Kennedy was shot. You have Is this all picture these taken the same day as Kennedy was shot. Yes, wink picture. Yes, but he does look awfully smug for the day the president got killed. Yeah, there is so much more in my book. Uh, me and Lee, you're going to learn who the real Lee Oswald was, how he tried to save Kennedy, which is why they had to shoot him only 47 hours after he was arrested. And this, they shot him, they put Lee Oswald in the ground the next day. Same day as Kennedy, by the way. They put him in the ground next day. It made him look like, and they blocked it off. Nobody could come. It made Lee look like he had no friends whatsoever because only his mother and his wife and baby and his brother, three people, were allowed. They they had no pallbearers allowed in, nothing. He was not, Lee Oswald was not even allowed to have a chapel service. They put the, the, uh, the casket in this chapel there at Rose Hill. And... They moved it out again when the fam- when the family was going to go in. They would not. They said he was too evil a man. And you see these reporters grinning, smiling, as they lugged the casket over to the gravesite. Lee Oswald was not buried in the city that he was born in, in New Orleans, where he would have had friends. They buried him in you know obscure place near Fort Worth. And then they said he had no friends. So, so then how does David Ferry fit into this? Because, uh, so you talk about your book, Me and Lee, a little bit there. So how about David Ferry and the Mafia Pilot? Well, David Ferry, uh, as I said, I, I hope I've made clear that he stood before, did I tell you he stood before 70 retired military officers, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So, but I don't think now, I heard they, how he was, well, uh, how he was well, killed or anything. Well, what happened is he got deeply involved with, uh, because he's making these trips back and forth with for Eastern Airlines also. Remember, the CIA and the mafia were working together to kill Castro. We were trying to get Castro. And, of course, I was involved in a, in a biological weapons project. Do that. That's important. Um, people will say, well, biological weapon. Well, yes, for example, the CIA has admitted that they actually doused a diving suit, for example, filled it with botulism. If, if uh Pastor would have actually put that diving suit on. It would have killed him. That's a biological weapon. So, I mean, don't think that what we were doing, trying to give him cancer because he was smoking cigars, would be so off the, the cuff it isn't. Or off the, you know, un, improbable. They had tried everything. They were trying more sophisticated attempts that would not implicate anybody. I mean, if he got, if Castro dies of cancer and he's smoking cigars and we're publicizing everywhere that smoking causes cancer, we're off the hook. Well, anyway, I just want to say David Ferry had now come to an, a, a situation where he realized that, that he was among people who some of them were serious about killing Kennedy, and they had power, a lot of power. They were connected, yes, with big names, big names involved. Kennedy said he wanted to smash 
the CIA into a thousand pieces after what happened at the Bay of Pigs. Hmm. He fired Alan Dulles, who was the head of the CIA. Yeah, Alan Dulles. Right? Yeah. A long time he was the head yeah. of the CIA. A long time. And where does Alan Dulles end up? He is selected by Lyndon Johnson to be on the board of the Warren Commission, <laughs> where he sure nothing about the CIA reaches the public. Think about that. Hmm. The man hated Kennedy's guts, and he's there investigating who killed Kennedy. Well, guess what? They're only looking at one man, Lee Oswald. And, and uh, Dulles made sure they look at nobody else. Nobody else. So, so was... And, uh... Was was Ferry's character in, in the movie JFK pretty accurate then, do you think? Yeah, uh, if you're talking about um, uh, Joe Pesci's character, uh, playing oh, David Ferry. Joe Pesci? Oh. Yeah, it was Joe Pesci. Well, he was too short and his voice was too high, but the nervousness, the uh, tension, the incessant energy is there. There are a couple scenes that reminded me of the way Dave would look. He was great in martial arts and all that. Tremendous pilot. He's Brilliant, though, and that doesn't really come through. The chain smoking does. I mean, the man lived on cigarettes, jello, and a beer, you know, and <clears throat> take a few vitamins to, to rev him up again. David Ferry realized that he was among traitors and that he was trusted because he'd expressed openly that he, you know, hoped Kennedy would be shot. Now he's in a situation where he can pass on information to people like Lee Oswald. And Lee did his best to do what he could. He so he told me, Lee did, I'm a Marine. You know, once a Marine, always a Marine. He said, I can't, I made an oath, he said, to protect the president, to obey him. He said, how can I obey a dead president? When Lee was arrested, he was wearing his Marine ring. Think about that. You can think of somebody going to shoot the president who's wearing a Marine ring. They said he was a communist. Well, to the public, they didn't tell the people that that was a Marine ring. They said it was a silver object. Hmm. It's only in the private records that you'll see it says Marine ring. So, I mean, in every way, they made sure. Now, others will say, well, he shot J.G. Tippett. We've got, we have a, a plaque up there in, in uh, Dallas that says so, you know. Well, I'm going to tell you something. That plaque was put up by the Texas Historical Association in, in 2012, and they put up another plaque, too. Both of them saying that Lee Oswald shot J.D. Tippett, the officer. The fact of the matter is, is that Ferris Rookstool, who's a, he's a career officer for the FBI, is the one that gave them all the information. It is in their own records. They used the FBI guy, Rookstool, to base their information on that Lee shot J.D. Tippett and then went to the Texas theater. As a matter of fact, they give the time for the shooting at 1.15 p.m. Now, remember, Kennedy was killed at 12.30, so we're talking about 45 minutes later. And they're saying Lee Oswald shot him at 1.15. Yet we have Butch Burroughs, who's the manager of the Texas theater, good man, a solid, respectable citizen, and several others who stated Lee Oswald at 1.15 p.m. was in the Texas theater. That's six-tenths of a mile away. Butch Burrell said he was, that Lee Oswald purchased popcorn from him at 1.15 p.m. Now, I guess Lee Oswald could buy locate and be in two places at once, and that's why he killed Officer Tippett. Even though we have some witnesses that said they, they saw two people involved, 
even though we have we have ammunition that was found at the scene that killed Tippett that does not match the gun they say that Lee Oswald used. I could go on and on about all the ways that Lee Oswald was framed. Another way I can express, for example, they said that Lee, they had found, it was front page news, they found a map. This map uh, it was supposed to show the trajectory marks how where you could shoot Kennedy from. Huh. Well, the next day, the very next day, the map, information about the map is on a low back page, way in the back of the newspaper. It says, oh, it wasn't about killing Kennedy. It happened to be about buses, you know, the bus lines. And another, they said that Lee Oswald sat there and calmly ate a chicken sandwich and drank a Dr. Pepper while he cold-bloodedly waited for Kennedy's, um, you know, uh, caravan to come through. They didn't say that a few days later they found out that Bonnie Ray Williams, a black man, had been up there eating that chicken sandwich and, and the, uh, the Dr. Pepper. But by then, everybody believed it was Lee. So this is what they did. Furthermore, we have four fingerprints. We, uh, this information has come out more recently. We knew about one fingerprint that the FBI said, no, it isn't his. It wasn't a it wasn't Mac Wallace's fingerprint. Now, who's Mac Wallace? Mac Wallace was somebody who owed Lyndon Johnson a huge favor. He was, Mac Wallace was a sharpshooter. He was also uh, very uh, good, it seems, at killing people. We can say that Billy Celestes had maybe some interest in revealing through his lawyer that Mac Wallace had been used by Lyndon Johnson to murder at least eight people. But we don't even have to go that far. We do know that Mac Wallace was definitely convicted of shooting dead a, a gentleman that he had an argument with. Shot, he shot him dead. The jury said so. He was a murderer. And, but Lyndon Johnson was across the street sending people over back and forth. The judge gave him a five-year suspended sentence. Hmm. Yeah, and a few years after that, it was erased from his record. So we have Mac Wallace owes Lyndon Johnson a lot, all right? And he goes on with his life, and it's very, very interesting that he is in Dallas. It, it, he works at a place in Dallas uh, the day of the assassination. His fingerprint, his little fingerprint, is found on a box up there on the sixth floor in the sniper's nest. Not only that, but we found out on the 22nd, of November this year, we have a witness who has come forth. Turns out there are four fingerprints of Mac Wallace up there on the boxes. And the FBI says they're not Mac Wallace's, but certified fingerprint experts like Nathan Darby say that's not so. Hmm. So what well, this would are be, you I guess this would be more, more of a planting of evidence than, uh, than shooting from there? Well, the point is, is Lee was never on the sixth floor at all. We also had a book come out last year, and her name is Victoria Adams. She and Sandra Stiles were coming down the stairs immediately after the shots. Now, if Lee Oswald had made those shots, they supposed to, first of all, they would have heard them, but they say uh, they're coming down the stairs. Lee Oswald would have had to pass them fast as he could and get into this lunchroom where he was seen buying a Coke or maybe drinking from it or whatever, because when they get to the bottom of the stairs, that's from the fifth floor to the fourth to the third to the second floor. No Lee Oswald. And who do they see coming up toward them? They see Marion Baker 
police officer, and Roy Truly, who stop and open the door and they look in, and there is Lee Oswald on the second floor, and they say he was drinking a Coke, but they erase that later because that looked pretty bad. How is it that Lee Oswald, what did he do, float? He's some kind of miracle worker because he gets past both of these women. The book is called Girl on the Stairs. And she was dying of cancer. She was it, she was actually gave that testimony to the Warren Commission and it was ignored. There's no way he was on the sixth floor. So how does Ferry fit in then? He's I suppose he's a good guy. David Ferry, David Ferry actually was a good guy, but now he had his problems. He was easily easy to be blackmailed because he was a homosexual. He had a run in with the police for uh, seducing a 15-year-old teenager boy, you know, Cal Landry. He was never convicted of that crime. But he lost his job with Eastern Airlines. When I knew him, he was trying to get the job back. He was working. Uh, he was also a cancer research expert, uh, not trained, but like I was, we received training on the side. Um, I received a lot more than he did, but he had been working on it for years because his mom was dying of cancer. He's trying to cure cancer. He became friends with Mary Sherman. We have Jim Garrison saying so. He had the records, Jim Garrison, the district attorney of New Orleans. Now we're talking about David Ferry. He's, he's talented. He's intelligent. He had helped save Carlos Marcello, who had been deported by Robert Kennedy. As far as Marcello knew, the godfather, uh, David Ferry hated uh, Kennedy with all his heart. And here David had actually helped rescue the Godfather when Robert Kennedy actually kidnapped Marcello, dumped him over in Guatemala. And then when they were treating him too well, had agents come and grab him again, dump him in the jungles of the Honduras where they thought he'd die. We're talking about broken ribs and busted ankle and so on, but he made it out with his attorney, Mike Maroon. They, he made it out into the, and um, somehow appears back in Texas, appears back and, you know, gets back to New Orleans then. And David Ferry had helped him. So I'll tell you something. Marcelo didn't like homosexuals, but he sure cared about making sure that David Ferry had a job after he lost his job with Eastern Airlines. And he's working for Carlos Marcelo's attorney. It's on record. Carlos Marcello, more than anything, wanted to see Kennedy dead. We have another motive going on here. Because he said, if we kill the head, it's going to get rid of the tail. That is the Attorney General, Robert Kennedy, who had actually sent more than 2,000 mafia members to prison. That's compared with just a couple hundred before the Kennedys came into office. Hmm. So you have, yeah, big difference there. They wanted so, to kill Kennedy very much. So you see. So and Dave had all so when was David Ferry uh, killed after, like, how long after well, all this happened? He, he, success, he successfully evaded arrest in the beginning. I mean, we have page upon page of, it's in my book, David Ferry, Mafia Pilot, of the many, um, many, many, many uh, pages that uh, the FBI had interrogated David Ferry. Then they went to his friends. They talked to all of them. We're talking about a lot of not a single word, not even David Ferry's actual name, got into the Warren Commission. So when you hear about, we have this wonderful collection of FBI uh, investigations. Anytime they found somebody who might have exonerated Lee Oswald, they're not mentioned. I mean, we have these stacks of stuff about David Ferry. FBI had 
uh, you know, investigated him because Garrison said, look, look, you've got to look at this person. He was associated with Lee Harvey Oswald. They looked and they proclaimed to the whole wide world, David Ferry had nothing to do with the Kennedy assassination, nothing to do with Oswald. Well, that worked until Frontline came out, you know, a decade or so ago, showed photograph of Lee Oswald with David Ferry. <laughs> and this was 18 months, yeah, 18 months before Lee joined the Marines. I mean, they were friends. There's no doubt about it. And of course, I'm a witness. I'm a living witness to that fact. Wow. So you have David Ferry is connected. Well, I've had my problems, but, you know, they kind of vanished. Because it's the same old people have been uh, you know, criticizing me, but after people meet me and they see that I've done this because I love Lee Oswald and because it's a labor of love, love can overcome a lot of hatred and a lot of evil. And I'm telling you right now, I feel it's a privilege that I'm able to speak to you and to others about the true Lee Oswald and who he really was. People have understood something's very fishy. Whenever they they spend just a couple of hours, get past the official version, get past these these high paid uh, movie uh, and uh, documentary things. When my documentary was made, the documentary "The Love Affair," it was on the History Channel. It was supposed to run for nine years, but oh, the Johnson family didn't like that. <laughs> they took my living out. You know that thing, "The Love Affair." which is part of the Men Who Killed Kennedy series. I originally, there were witnesses. There's not a single witness left. They just took them all out. Even so, it's still on YouTube today. You can see it. And then there's Anna Lewis. She is one of the witnesses. She says that Lee and I were lovers. And uh, you can find that on YouTube as well. Um, it's, so they don't want to mention any any of these old critics. And I say old because new critics are not coming forward. They're, they just don't. Uh, there are too many people have met me now and they know, hey, I was in the hospital five times in four years. I've had death threats. History Channel put up that I claimed to have helped develop AIDS, which is a lie. Can you imagine? What if, what if you had had that written about you? Do you know how many people would be mad at you? Oh, yeah. So I have to live overseas. Yeah. I have to live overseas for my safety. But lately, in the last couple of years, they can't criticize if they bring up the book Me and Lee. Somebody may want to read Me and Lee, so they don't want to bring up the book. Yeah, so right, they do. Right. Yeah. So they say things like, oh, she's old. No, or she wears, she can't see. She, she wears glasses. You know, they're going to say bad, try and make anything a character assassination, you know, is, is cheap and it's easy and it's cruel. Well, I don't care what they say because I know what happened. I know who Lee Oswald was and people are listening. Do you know I went to 31 cities? I'm just finishing a book tour that started in September. And my friends, Facebook, people, people have read my book, read me, Lee, and anticipated the coming out of David Ferry Mafia Pilot. They actually asked me to come to their cities, 31 cities we're wow. talking about. They paid for the phone, uh, for the phone, for the plane tickets. They paid for the hotel bills. They paid to get me into, into their city halls and into their libraries. I've been speaking all over, and it's been wonderful. The support has been incredible. Good for you. And, That's great. of course, we ended up at this conference in uh, 22nd, 23rd, and 24th. It, I said, let's get everybody together, the great, the best researchers in the country. We did that. 
Was that the first one? We then? Thought they, well, this was the first JFK conference, assassination conference, where only people who were telling the truth were allowed. <laughs> In other words, if they said the magic bullet existed, you know, if they said somebody could be shot at, like one person who wanted to speak, uh, he said that the bullet went through Kennedy's neck. That's even despite the fact that Gerald Ford, the president himself, before he died, he said, yes, I moved that bullet hole up five inches. I had to. Otherwise, the magic bullet wouldn't have worked. You know, wrong angle. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the president saying that. Well, I'm not going to have any. So we had these wonderful speakers. We had new witnesses. We started out with a good venue. We ended up because of lots of support at the Sheraton Hotel for three days in their big ballroom. Wow. It was wonderful. It was it's all paid for. So I wanted to ask you, like, kind of switch gears a little bit. Um, yeah. Do you, you know, you hear about all these other reasons why uh, Kennedy was killed and, of course, UFOs come up, too. Did you come across that in any of your research that, like, he was going to blow the lid off that? or you know, Well, I in? people say uh, research. I actually did no research until I started having to defend um, what, you see, I wrote the book originally in 1999. Right. Then I put a book out there because I, it's true. If I was afraid they would find my witnesses, maybe hurt them. So I said to publishers, you know, if you see what I've got for evidence, hey, some of these publishers actually canceled some of the books that had been written by others. And they got mad at me, you can imagine. So uh, some of them are not my friends. Well, that's too bad. Uh, that's the way it goes. As for research, I'm not a researcher, but I had to become one to substantiate uh, the facts and the people and what they did. And I have found, of course, much evidence. And of course, I kept materials myself. Now, about UFOs and all that, there are so many ways that we can assemble enemies of Kennedy. Let's put it this way. And I've tried to explain this to others. Who killed Julius Caesar? Yeah. You know who did it? Who did it? Horus. <laughs> Brutus. His name. They Brutus. said Brutus. Yeah, Brutus. That's what well, it was. I knew it was something else. Well, here's the thing. Brutus wasn't alone. Brutus and at least seven or eight senators yeah. attacked Julius Caesar with with knives. But guess who got blamed? Brutus. <laughs> so here's the thing. A lot of people were involved. Now, do we have the names of the senators who attacked Caesar? It's very, very hard to find them. Even after all this time, we do have a few names. How come that that uh, how how come it is that that um, didn't get out? How come we don't have a record of how they had planned this? What I'm trying to say is that in this modern day and age, we had these enemies of Kennedy who had one thing in common: they hated Kennedy. Each of them had enough of a role to play that no one could point a finger at anybody else without them pointing a finger back. Like Hoover, who became the director for life. You know, Lyndon Johnson made him director for life. I mean, he had a real motive there to proclaim that Lee Oswald was the only one involved. And then you have Lyndon Johnson, who would have gone to prison, or he could choose to become president. Or we could say the CIA with Lee, that uh, Kennedy said he was going to smash into a thousand pieces. And then we have General Charles Cabell. He was a general and his, he was humiliated and disgraced. Kennedy fired him because he was the one in charge, basically, of the Bay of Pigs operation and fooled Kennedy into believing 
that um, it would be a success. They didn't want it to be a success. They wanted to make Kennedy look bad and weak so they could handle him themselves. Now, who was General Cavill? Well, this will give you an idea. General Cavill's brother was Charles uh, of Charles Cavill. General Charles Cavill, his brother's name was Earl. Earl Cavill, his brother, was the mayor of Dallas when Kennedy was shot. So when you put all these things together, you see it's a coalition. Let's not forget the mafia, too. Well, of course, and of course, a few years ago, finally, the CIA admitted that they had worked with the mafia to try to kill Castro. So you have anti-Castro people, and you have the mafia, and you have the CIA all interested in doing away with Kennedy as well. So you can use any numbers of different snipers. You can use uh, hit teams. It doesn't matter who you use. It's the fact that they let him do it, and they covered it up, and they made the body disappear. I mean, think about this. Kennedy's body was removed from its jurisdiction in Dallas, taken out of jurisdiction, which is against the law, taken to Bethesda, Maryland, where we have people like Dennis Davis saying they saw two caskets, Kennedy's body and his head. Um, they were not in the, the casket. His body was not in the casket that we see on TV. That casket, by the way, was dropped off in the sea. They didn't want, I think, anybody to inspect the fact that maybe no blood was inside that casket. Why? Because according to Dennis David and others, Kennedy arrived in a completely different kind of casket. And we know that the back of the head, Kennedy, you look at the Zapruder film. It's famous. As Garrison said, back and to the left, back and to the left. That is, that's the way Kennedy's head was going. Back and to the left. That's not when you shoot at somebody, your head is not going to go toward the bullet. Well, Lee Oswald was stationed behind Kennedy. Therefore, if Kennedy's head is going back into the left and his head blows up, it came from the front. But they didn't want people to know that. We have Dan Rather. He was from New Orleans. This man was CBS's guy in New Orleans. He runs up. Uh, the second day, and he says, I've seen this film. That is the Zapruder film. They thought this film would never get out to the public, you see. You know, Garrison got it out to the public. Garrison got it. But before, and he got it by court order. But before that, Life magazine got hold of it, and they printed accidentally things backwards so that you couldn't tell how Kennedy's head went. Well, I'll tell you why not, because Dan Rather said, I saw Kennedy's head thrown violently forward. And the people believed it. Well, then much later, you know, people said, look, we've seen the Zapruder film. We can see that Kennedy's head was thrown violently backward, not forward. What's going on here? Yeah. And so rather said, oh, I must have seen the film backwards. Right. Yeah. Do you believe that? Or how about the fact that we have now pictures uh, that we've blown up the Zapruder film and pixelated it. So it's just, we're talking about it's huge now on a great big TV screen. They've done this. Uh, we have Douglas Horn of the ARRB. That's a Assassination Records Review Board. As a witness, I myself have seen them too. We have 31 uh, experts. They're restoration, film restoration experts who have looked at the Zapruder film that's just blown up. You can see the back of Kennedy's head painted in black. They don't want you to see the red blood. They wiped away the blood and they show some red stuff coming up out of his, out of his head from the front. 
you know, from the side like that. It just isn't so. Despite all those efforts, you see, they couldn't hide back to the left. Yes, there are at least five frames showing the back of Kennedy's head painted in black. Hmm. So that you can't see what happened. You have Parkland doctors, the ones who saw Kennedy. There, there's a famous photo. Just look on the Internet. It shows all of them have their hand behind their back of their head showing where the big hole was in Kennedy's skull. And it was in the back. It wasn't on top or in the front like it shows in the Warren Commission. And yet the Parkland doctors are ignored. We have the skull that's in the Warren Commission. They members never saw the photographs. They never saw any of the autopsy stuff. They got a drawing. They were given a drawing that showed the top of Kennedy's head, you know, busted out. Huh. That's not the way it was. So, so, is so this, are you guys making absolute, headway? Huh? Is, oh, are, yeah. Are you guys are. making headway? Like, what, what do you think, see, foresee in the future here? Is it going to, is it going to open well, up a little I'll, bit? Is something going to collapse? Yeah. I'll give you an example. Uh, this year, on the 24th, it's the 50th, 51st anniversary that Lee was placed into the ground. Now, people, as I said, it was a horrible ceremony the first time. Couldn't get any pallbearers, wouldn't let anybody be at They buried him one day after he was dead, so nobody could have come. They didn't bury him in his hometown. He is at Rose Hill, Shannon Rose Hill. I mean, if you had, we have photographs, you can go to Judith Baker, J-U-D-Y-T-H Baker, uh, on Facebook, or you can go to the JFK Assassination Conference and look for yourself. The, the there you look at the grave. It's covered with hundreds of flowers, bunches of flowers, all kinds of notes to Lee Oswald saying how sorry we are. Thank you for giving your life trying to save Kennedy. It is a remarkable change from just a few years ago. Wow. That's interesting. So where, do you think that'll keep happening? Oh, yeah. We expect that we are. We, we do not believe we can get a fair trial for Lee Oswald because, of course, he asked for it. Asked for legal representation. The man was taken in the middle of the night and charged first with the, the um, death of J.D. Tippett and then with of John F. Kennedy. And they said he refused to have a lawyer. When he told the, the reporters out there, will somebody please come forward, said to assist me, he needed legal assistance. He asked for lawyers. They, they wouldn't let him have a lawyer. Are you kidding? And he said, I am a patsy. And yet the Warren Commission says that he was seeking glory. When he's crying out, he didn't do it. And he didn't do it. I loved him. When we prayed together, you know, 37 and a half hours before the assassination, he said, please pray for me and pray with me. And we prayed to our father. And I, I was an atheist at that time. I'm not anymore. And he was an agnostic. So we prayed to our father together. And then he said, he said, it's a very old prayer to God. Maybe he will hear it. He said, I've, I've done my best. I've given warnings. I've sent out uh, warnings. I've even sent threats to try to get more protection for Kennedy. He said, nothing's working. I've seen too many faces. I'm under suspicion. He said, I'm going to die. Wow. That's, yes, sir. That's yes, powerful, sir. Powerful stuff. So you know, really... what he finally said? you know what he finally said? What's that? He said, please tell my little girls I was a good guy. Wow. To you? Yes. Yes, did, sir. Did you manage to do that? 
That's what I'm doing right now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Part of the mission. Yes. Yes. Well, we want to thank you for bringing all this stuff to light and, and fighting the good fight here. It's the biggest conspiracy in the world. So it's, uh, it must be a bit of an adventure being in kind of uh, in the limelight with all this now. Well, the point is, is if you persist and you're telling the truth, the people feel it and they understand when they meet you and they see it. I've saved all these things from way back then. If that was history, I mean, we were in a project to try and kill Castro. Of course, I started saving materials. And then when Lee said he's going to die, I started memorizing every darn thing he ever said. And I have an excellent memory. It's been um, some people have wondered how you can have such a memory. I learned how to read when I was three years old. My IQ is high. And uh, these things, uh, you know, are in my favor. I can remember all these things. But they've been they've panned out. And, of course, I have my witnesses. The main thing is that we can't probably get the U.S. government to ever admit their part in covering this up and taking advantage and, um, you know, allowing Kennedy to be shot by who knows how many enemies that let it happen. And they blamed an innocent man who tried to stop it. We think we have to go to world court to get oh, wow. to get justice for John F. Kennedy. Huh. Well, we, you know, we wish you the best of luck in that world court. I mean, at least it sounds like, uh, regardless of whether the U S government admits anything, at least, uh, it sounds like it's, it's getting out there to, to the fact that there's, uh, there's something else going on here and it's not everybody oh, just yes. belie- believing what they see in Hollywood. So, but just because something's been repeated over and over, doesn't mean if you hear two plus two is five, that is true. When you look at the specifics, it doesn't take long to understand the truth. And the young people are looking. They're not watching these TV specials. No, no, exactly. No, they're getting information. So a lot of the people that are interested are young. You'd be surprised how many. Yeah. So, Judith, we're going to link to all that in the show notes, so your books and, and all oh, that kind great. of stuff, some of the stuff that we talked about. Is there anything else you want to you want to say to the listeners before we well, uh, wrap uh, this up? Well, about that, they can go to Judith Baker blogspot.com if they want an autographed uh, copy. The main thing is get the book, me and Lee, get the book, David Ferry, but especially me, me and Lee, and share it with others. You know, get them in your libraries. Uh, we've had tremendous uh, response. We have in libraries, I mean, people are lined up 20, 30, you know, waiting to get their hands on a book that's always out, you know, always yeah. checked. Yeah. So, the book is hard to find in a way you can go to trying date books, get it. What's interesting is this book came out four years ago and it's, it's selling better now than it did when it first came out. I mean, it just keeps going. Wow. That's and that's great. because it's tough. Yeah. yeah. So God bless you all. I'm just telling you the Oswald was an innocent man. Justice has to be done. I think God is sick of all the lies. And I think that because the man who took Kennedy's place went on to, Pushed the Vietnam War. We've had wars ever since. It's the military industrial complex that wants to keep us in a state of war. We also have the cancer problem. People want a cure for cancer. We're not going to get it from a, an industry that makes a lot of money treating cancer, building cancer treatment palaces. I wanted to cure cancer. And part of my mission is to focus again on a cure for cancer. You're not going to be getting a cure by uh, working with pharmaceutical companies. You're going to have to go to independent areas. We don't have them anymore. Most of the universities are being funded by pharmaceutical uh, concerns. They want to 
treat cancer, not cure it. We've got to do something about it. We need to have free hospitals, free medical care. Why do I say that? Because right now, in other countries, you have to get free medical care. You get if you get cancer, you're all you're going to be safe. You know, your family's going to be safe. You're not going to lose your home. In our country, we have for-profit hospitals. We have for-profit insurance companies. They should not be for-profit. That should be it. Are you, understood are you gonna, as oh unethical, sir. Unethical. Are you going to write a book or something about that, or because uh, we talk about you know people healing different people modalities want, of healing? Yeah, we've got to change things. Uh, we're we're bankrupting our kids. I mean, uh, the whole situation is not caring for our people. We had so many dreams with Kennedy. We need to bring back Kennedy's big dreams and take care of ourselves, take care of our young. Who said that kids have to go into debt for 30 years just to get a college education when college education is free in many countries in Europe? You go to Sweden or you go to Norway or you go to Germany. In Germany, American kids can go there and get a free college education. Why should ours go into debt? Why should people lose their homes in order to get cancer treatment? Yeah. What is on? Why is money God in this country? Yeah, it is. It is. Profit is king. Yeah. It should be like that. Let's start caring for each other. Well said. So join me in this. You see, my heart's in this. Well said. Thanks a lot, Judith. All right. God bless okay. you now. Okay. Have a great night. Bye right. bye. Okay, guys, uh, in Grand America tonight, we're going to be chatting with Dr. John Moser about his new book, uh, Super Civilization. Uh, but first, Graham, how's it going, buddy? Uh, not too bad, Darren. Pretty good, buddy. Still didn't change it. Yeah, I know. Yeah, we got to change that intro. So it's going to be an exciting chat tonight. We've got uh, Dr. John Moser here, who's the author of The Super Civilization Survival in the Era of Human versus Human. Now, the research he's done crosses all kinds of uh, areas like global warming and terrorism and governments and Ebola and all kinds of stuff. And John's, uh, John's got, he's the CEO of Humans for a Healthy, I'm going to have to get that title right there. <laughs> yeah, Humans for a Healthier World. Right, for a healthier world. And currently he's also a med, uh, an emergency physician in California. So we're looking forward to talking with him about all kinds of stuff here and especially about, you know, the last decade of his research and coming up with this book called The Super Civilization. So welcome to Grime America, John. Thank you for inviting me on your show. That's great. I guess we got to start here with uh, like the high level picture here of of your book and called the Super Civilization. So it can kind of be you know construed by the title in a couple of different ways. But you're talking here about uh, 
survival in the era of human versus human. So what do you mean by that? Yeah, um, since uh, 9-11, around the turn of the century and the development of the Internet, um, we have created a, what I deem as a super civilization. And the super civilization is defined the way, way I view it as uh, the, the first time that we've ever had increased interconnectedness, such uh, great disparities in wealth and uh, um, threats to our resource base with resource depletion. All three of those factors have uh, worked together to create um, one civilization. Now, a lot of people will say, no, we're, we're all separate countries, we're all separate cultures, et cetera. Well, if you really want to look closely, and you know, I started this in uh, December of two, 2001, right after 9-11, this whole uh, work, and I was wondering you know, how we were going to um, face some really big challenges. Terrorism was one. Climate change was starting to come about. So we were learning more. And one of the common themes that I was seeing through all these things, and, and, and illegal immigration was another issue, um, disparities in the third world where there was no capital that was that is still not being spent in, um, in Africa and some parts of uh, Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. So the end result with all that was that um, – We've seen um, really a truly global existence now for the first time in the history of humanity. And that includes solving problems in which all individuals need um, to participate. Um, You can no longer – it's what I call – and sociologists would call a a mandatory social contract where we all have to participate and we have no choice. Um, Someone who decides that they want to emit more carbon than others – um, whether it's a fossil fuel company or if you're simply just uh, taking a ride in a car, uh, you're all, we're all participating in this. And, and that's the problem is that I think we haven't, still haven't realized that we're, we're one super civilization. And we have now the opportunity for the first time in our history to see a significant uh, ma- major self-annihilation. Um, it's not a, about conspiracies or about uh, prophecies or anything. It's just w- what I found in, in looking at the evidence for the last 12 years as I was writing this book. So so what, what do you mean by human versus human then? Yeah, that, that, what I define as the three biosociophysical eras of humanity. So there's some new terminology that I brought in. Um, and when I mean biosociophysical, I mean um, that we all have – we all face uh, challenges, and they can be natural or they can be human-induced challenges. Natural challenges would be like an asteroid uh, um, falling on the Earth. A self-induced um, uh, problem would be a, uh, a thermonuclear war. Right. So what happened in the first year before we had um, met our levels of subsistence, and this would be 10,000 B.C., we were primarily fighting nature. Um, we really, you know, most of the, again, anthropologists differ uh, on this, but most would have to agree that we were more of an egalitarian existence where we all had to work together to do the hunting on the large animals and be able to survive. We had to work together. Then we entered the second biosociophysical era, and that was from 10,000 BC to 2000 AD. Uh, where we had a mixture of human-induced problems and um, and then uh, uh, natural problems. And uh, the nation-state came about, and then finally um, the year 2000, roughly, when the Internet came about and the development of our interconnections, what I call ICQ or 
ICQ and ITQ, which are formulas for our interconnectedness, they have exponentially increased to the point now where in this third era, our primary focus should be on ourselves. And it should not necessarily be on asteroids or super volcanoes or if we really want to protect ourselves against self-annihilation. And that, that's the problem is that it hasn't really, you know, I'm trying to create a new scientific discipline called uh, human catastrophe theory. And what I'm trying to do is make it evidence-based um, to look for solutions, searching solutions for dealing with the human predicament of the year 2014. Because I don't think that we have seriously looked at the possibility of a self-annihilation. And if, if you don't believe me on this, uh, Nick Bostrom and, and uh, um, Sir Martin Rees, both at Cambridge and, um, and Oxford, have basically said that in the 21st century – you know, we could be a, it could be a coin toss whether we survive this century. And if you look at the results in Lima, Peru, a couple days ago, you look at uh, Feinstein's report on uh, the the United States and what we did with the uh, um, the, the tortures of the C, by the CIA. You look at all these factors, you see that we're not really have not really met what I call global realization, which is the notion that we have to reach unprecedented levels of cooperation that we've never before had to reach in order to solve these overarching problems. And, and so that's why I wrote the book. And my book, I want it to move humanity in the direction of saying, look, we're all now have to deal with our problems, our human problems. We have to deal on a sociological level to deal with the problems that we have. And unfortunately, um, I, I don't think we've reached it. And, and the mission statement for humanity was an outgrowth of that. So I didn't create the mission statement. It's a 10-point plan that I have for um, dealing with our, uh, our human condition today with our interconnected world. And uh, it came about because I was not finding satisfactory answers to those questions that I was bringing up right after 9-11, which is how are we going to deal with terrorism? How are we going to deal with climate change? and um, some of the major uh, resource uh, declines that we're dealing with now. And so that's why I wrote the book. Huh, that's, that's fascinating. So how, do you, how, do you, how did you sift through, like you, you talked about going through, uh, you know, like looking at the science of it and all that, right? How do you sift through all the propaganda? I mean, you know, we hear so much now about how uh, money is involved in all this stuff, whether it's the military-industrial complex or, you know, the media with the fear porn about ISIS and all this stuff. Like how do you get to the to the crux of the problem? Boy, that's a good question. Um, the, I try very hard to reach, uh, to, to look at credible sources, sources that are not tainted by, um, you know, that are not tainted by their uh, vesting of what they're doing. And um, so, I, you know, I, I, I poured over 1,000 to 2,000 references as best I could. Not everyone, you know, the reality is, is there's no objectivity uh, in a subjective world. Okay, that's, we're in a subjective world today. But what I have tried to do is look and see as best I can at the best arguments that are being made. Uh, for example, let's just take climate change, for example. I, I don't really one. see – yeah, right. I mean, see, you're saying it and you can see it. The writing's on the wall. Um, Lima, I, you know, I wrote a small little uh, tidbitted commentary in the New York Times, real small. Uh, it wasn't an article, but it was just a comment. 
um, on the results of that. And um, I, I, too little, too late, too weak. Um, it's really, it's what I call a pseudo solution where we're placating vested interests such as oil companies because now since the Citizens United cases and various other cases, and again, I'm not an attorney, but just basic, based upon what I've read in the New York Times and, and, and various uh, other sources, um, this, uh, we've now created a case where we've got unlimited political spending, um, essentially, uh, in the United States by large corporate interests. And so if you look at that, we'll, we'll never reach our targeted goal by the IPC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Uh, we won't re- reach it. It's just, it's, it's not a reality. And, you know, it's funny because you could say, well, Dr. Moser, you're not part of reality here if you think that your 10-point plan is going to go anywhere. And I simply asked people, I said, are, are, the, are the delegates down in Lima, were they any more realistic when they couldn't come up with a, uh, a, a verifiable, significant plan to deal with climate change? And all they came away with was an agreement, uh, albeit it's a better than nothing, but uh, an agreement to limit carbon emissions. But they've left it up to the entire, all the individual countries to determine what type of limits um, and reductions that they're going to make in their CO2 emissions. So if um, if uh, climate change is, is such a problem, how come there's no... There's no, there doesn't seem to be any clear consensus. Like we talk to a broad range of people, and I would say it's almost split down the middle of, of who says it's. Well, I, you know, there's no denying climate change itself, but I suppose on who's saying that it's man-made or man-made or not is probably fifty-fifty split. You know, the the real problem with climate change uh, is that uh, the geophysics, even if you look at the IPCC reports. They vary the fourth versus the fifth. Um, so the one recently last year versus the fourth. If you notice, the predictions are so wide, it's almost unhelp- unhelpful. Right, uh, right. You know, it was between this last one, I believe it was between 0.8 and 4.5 uh, degrees Celsius. Um, those models are not very helpful because we're not really creating a consensus. So the, if the, the general population is feeling, look, if the scientific community can't agree on this, why should we vest ourselves in, a, in an effort to contain this problem when we can't even get a consensus? But there's the illusion, I think. The illusion is, is that those, um, those uh, vested interests, and I, you know, ma- ma- mainly the oil companies and, um, and natural gas companies, and, and again, they're not villains. What they are is they are corporations, and that means their number one goal is to make money. It's not to make a healthy environment. It's to make money. So what we need to do is we need to take away that power from the corporate corporate sector, and this is what all my book is about, invested in the entire world. And one way to do that is to enfranchise all individuals throughout the world, all 7 billion people, give them a, uh, give them a vote, not just the wealthiest people of the wealthiest countries in the world. That's how we're going to solve our problems. It's not going to be by, uh, you know, oh boy, you know, uh, let's go in and kill the oil companies. And what I want to try to do is work with the oil companies to realize that they have got to get new sources of technology in order to solve our most dire problems. And I think that they would listen if 
they were forced to, and they knew that it would, the money would be there if they did it. And we're starting to see a little bit of change, but, but not enough to make a significant dent in the 85% reduction that we'll need by 2040. Um, I just don't see it happening. Uh, Jeffrey Sachs, who wrote the deep, the, he was his group and his group, Deep Decarbonization, wrote a very good um, report uh, about a month ago, I, I think, or so, uh, outlining what was necessary. And uh, to be quite honest with you, I don't think that the Lima uh, consensus uh, did much of anything because if you look at it, the United States reductions are all through the EPA, and none of them are through congress- new congressional um, uh, legislation. So the end result is, is that we think that we're doing ourselves a better service, but we've got to make those reductions quickly. I mean, uh, I hate to say it, we need to be not, and we've got to be careful not to panic, but we've got to be outlaying capital to, for example, carbon sequestration projects. Um, you know, new sources of power, uh, new smart grids, um, those types of things, and unfortunately, I hate to say it, and I'm not a um, I'm not a uh, an engineer, so I can't say how close those are. But it, to me, it just doesn't appear that they're all that close. Yeah, I don't know. That's a tough one, man. That that whole climate change thing f- for us here. Well, I, I think we're screwed now anyway, because the latest article I read said that the the squirrels burrowing in the permafrost and. Siberia and all throughout there is now going to cause it to yeah. defrost even faster now. So, Yeah, you know what's uh, interesting is that in the book I, I focused in one chapter on climate change. Uh, it's important, so it was one out of my 12 chapters. But on that, um, you got to keep in mind that – and the key point is that there's no PhD out there who can say for sure what's going to happen. And that's the scary part is you can either be an optimist and you can say, well, we don't know, so we'll just take it one step at a time. Or you can be a pessimist and say, okay, I would rather be on the side of being safe. Let's go ahead and and, uh, reduce, like for example, some reports have said that we have to put, it'll cost us about 1% of our GDP per year to do the things necessary. I think it's gonna be more than that personally. But uh, again, I'm not an economist. Uh, I, I'm just kind of looking in, in, from gut instinct. I think it's going to be more. But what we have to do is we have to all realize that we've got to scramble here, and and it's not happening. Um, I don't see it, and I see, you know, glimmers of hope, but I don't see dramatic changes that need to be done. And uh, President Obama, I give his hat, hit, my hats off to him because he's trying. But I think what we need is a uh, – we need new legislation, um, and I don't think we'll get it because with the new Congress coming in, we've already seen like uh, um, Senator Inhofe make statements that um, they weren't going to allow much in the way of climate change. And, of course, all the attorneys generals, uh, their report in the New York Times recently – and, again, uh, you can refer to that article – uh, basically said that a lot of the reports by the attorneys general, um, particularly in Oklahoma, were written, ghost written by, um, by uh, energy companies. That's not helpful. Um, that's a sad um, event that's taking place. So we've got to realize that um, these problems need to have real solutions and not pseudo solutions. Pseudo solutions meaning solutions for those companies that derive benefit. And don't realize 
that in the long run, they're only hurting themselves um, as well as uh, all of humanity. And we got to get the companies to realize that. That's the first thing. They're starting to, but uh, it's nowhere near where we got to go. Yeah, well, it's a it's a big problem to try and solve because, like, if you want to go one world government, then I mean, basically now you've got to you you've got to try and like neutralize everyone's living conditions. You can't just have you know the places on Earth that are slums now continue to be slums. If under a one world government, it's got to be the goal has got to be everyone equal. So now you've got all these places that aren't burning fossil fuels now that are going to need power and energy in order to bring them up to snuff. And, um, you know, what, what's, I suppose, what's the technological solution? Is it nuclear or is it something new? Or um, Yeah, you know what? Um, since I'm an emergency physician and not a nuclear engineer, I'll defer to the nuclear engineers. But <laughs> what I will tell you is this, is that um, from what I'm seeing, for example, um, Mr. Bill Gates is trying uh, new forms of nuclear power. I think there are there is potential out there. You know, James Hansen has come out in favor of nuclear power as a as an alternative. Um, what I fear most is that we resort to last minute heroics, and this is what I call a synergistic catastrophe: is when we start to cut corners on what we're doing to save ourselves, and the end result is you end up with. Um, disaffected individuals, the individuals who are disenfranchised, who are angry. The third world um, has a, a disproportionate share of the outcome of climate change. The end result, they get upset. Um, they start to panic. They um, then do what they can to disrupt the, the first world. And the first world has to spend more money uh, fighting the third world uh, terrorists that are out there. It all fo kind of goes downhill in a, in a vicious cycle. And I think that's a realistic possibility. And if we stop, we have to stop n not talking about it. We have to start talking about this realistic possibility. And that's my goal here is to start human catastrophe theory and get the scientific, the mainstream scientific community on board with the notion that, okay, we're looking at a sociological die-off. And if you don't believe a die-off can occur, just remember World War One and Two, where you saw about 3 to 5% of the population, 80 million or so, plus or minus 10 million, died from those two wars. Wow. Imagine, and that's about 3 to 5%, imagine with the technology that we have today, if there is a panic out there and standards of living drop fairly quickly, you could see a die-off of three, five, maybe more, and that um, translates into 300, 500 million people in a, in a heartbeat um, or more because of the, the technology um, that's out there, which is an incredibly uh, severe punishment for um, la the lack of cooperation. So rather than – and I came to this conclusion on the mission statement that we all have to work together. The only conclusion that I could come to was in order to get capital to flow to the area, the poorest areas so that we can, we can attack – well, I don't want to say attack, but we can encourage people – in those areas who are on the fence about terrorism, let's say those young disaffected individuals say, I, I, I don't necessarily believe in terrorism, but all of a sudden ISIS gets a hold of them. They do the, which they are, they're doing social media right now to incite these other people who are on the fence. And before you know it, you've got a world war on your hands. Um, and, and, and that's a realistic possibility. I don't, 
I, I don't think I'm the one that's being unrealistic when I'm talking about a potential for a um, for a die off. Yeah, it's it's hard to know, man. It's still it's still hard for me to sift through all the propaganda, whether it's about terrorism or climate change. I mean, you see these guys like you know Al Gore and you know getting rich off this type of stuff and the carbon trading type things that they tried to implement. So, you know, you wonder why, of course, people get disenfranchised when uh, there's billions and billions being spent and, and there's really still kind of an argument over whether the earth has been cooling or warming over the last 20 years. I mean, that's kind of the stuff that we're hearing, but I don't, I don't want to keep going down too far. I mean, you can, you can comment on that, but I do want to ask you about some money, money and resource questions and stuff. I know we're pretty short on time. Here. Yeah. Yeah. Just uh, on the issue of uh, just in general about, um, uh, climate change and those people who are benefiting those who are not or uh, uh, yes there in every um, potential problem there are people out there who make money off of problems you know uh, Naomi Klein has written about that and shock doctrine etc and, yeah. and let, let me just say this let's just say there are some people out there um, who are working very hard uh, and, and I know and have no doubt, for example, that uh, Ban Ki Moon is uh, uh, isn't is doing what he can to make things happen. Because I've seen his speeches and I've seen what he's doing, but he's got virtually no power. It's the, in the United States, and it resides in in the president, and it resides in Congress. And until you can convince Congress that we have a problem with climate change, uh, we won't address it. And what I fear most is that we'll realize in five years, you know, every minute that we wait to address this problem, the solution becomes more and more difficult. It just does, and more expensive and more problematic. Uh. Um, Right now, for example, um, the oceans are buffering. Most geophysicists, I believe, and again, I'm not a geophysicist, but most geophysicists would probably concur that the buffering of the oceans of the heat, so most of the heat that's that's, um, heated up in the earth uh, has occurred in the oceans. Um, once that reaches a tipping point, um, you could see a dramatic rise in uh, in the in not only the CO two because of the permafrost. Because you mentioned the permafrost, uh, you mentioned albedo, which is the uh, bouncing off of the of the light when you have glaciation that's decreased. You get methane hydrates that uh, that uh, decrease. You get the biosphere that's decreasing. Look at California where I live. Uh, we were just gracious to have the last rains of the last week or two because it was um, becoming almost desperate the, the way we were looking at things. Whether that's due to climate change or not, no one knows. Okay, But I, as one of the um, climatologists said, at a minimum, at a minimum, the I- increased heat in California has caused more evaporation to occur and led to a more severe uh, uh, drying off of the, of the climate. So Yes, you could be a, you could be a cynic, and you could say, "Well, people get rich off this problem." Problem, but I think w- the really key to solving this problem is that we've got to try to maintain as an objective, evidence based uh, approach as we possibly can, and not panic, but do the things that we need to do uh, to bring the twenty first and then the twenty second century. Uh, for our kids, grandkids, and and beyond, and keep it in a sustainable world that we grew up in. Because right now, I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty. This is why I'm motivated. Is I I don't think 
that the climate and the environment is we've left it in as good a shape as when I when when I got here. And yeah, no, I, I would agree. I would agree with the yeah. I would agree with the the environment for sure. Yeah, I, I think clean up the environment. It's just I'm, I'm on the fence about the big picture climate change thing. So, anyways, let's let's switch gears because I do want to ask you. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff to talk about here. So when you're when you're doing all this research, did you did you come across or what are your thoughts about this fractional reserve banking system and and the basically creating money out of debt for all the governments, right? Like, is that to to me when I look at this this problem we have in society, money is usually at the root of it in some way or another. And to me, it's the banks that are getting you know rich off of this, and the governments don't have the power to control their own money, really. So did you did you come across anything? What do you think about all that? Well, are you talking about the bubble that occurred in 2008 and the real estate and the crash and the fact that uh, we still have um, pretty much the same lending standards? Some will say, oh, you know, we've improved it and made it, um, you know, uh, much more solid. But if you look at it, the banks, the, the largest banks in this country of the United States uh, are still in, in present. And there's still no safeguards against one of those banks failing. Um, they're too, still too big to fail. Uh, I, I, and again, I'm not an economist, but I'm just a, a citizen. And I'm concerned that we didn't do much to stem this. And I think, um, you know, you were asking about the banking systems, and I'm, I'm assuming you're getting at this, uh, this collapse. Are you getting at the collapse? Well, you- no, no. Well, I mean, it's, it's part of that because that's, that's what happened. But I mean, the governments can't create their own money anymore, right? It all has to come through the Federal Reserve or whatever other system is is basically funneling money through the governments to the people at debt instead of, you know, a greenback type system. So to me, that could be the root of a lot of the problems, right? Is just the... Well, it depends this, on if you're a Keynesian economist. I tend to be a Keynesian economist where fiscal and monetary policy are molded together. And that's my understanding. Again, I'm not an economist, but uh, they're molded together and they should be combined. And what's happened is, is when you have times of uh, where you get a collapse in the economy, uh, Keynes believed that the government should bail out uh, capitalism. Um, I still think that that's a way to go. Um, and I'm speaking in the general picture of um, you know the the bailout of the banks, uh-huh. but I think it was wrong that the banks were bailed out and they got on their feet again and they're in the, they're strong again. But again, what's to stop a CEO of one of the banks, Jamie Dimon or um, someone else, to just make another outlandishly bad decision uh, and then cause another collapse in the banking system? I don't think we've. I don't think we really learn the lesson that we need to learn. And this is why, uh, you know, again, another reason why I wrote the book is because uh, I don't think that uh, the concentration of wealth in this country is a good thing. Um, I think, uh, you know, and you mentioned equality. I'm not necessarily saying that everyone has to be equal. I'm just talking about mobility, upward mobility and meritocracy. And I think those people who, who work the hardest – and, uh, you know, should be rewarded. But I don't think that the necessarily that um, the people, the, the children of the people who work the hardest and the, uh, you get into a real um, um, difficult uh, situation if you keep the, uh, the, the, mo- mo- the money that people have uh, and you allow them to um, 
to utilize their resources to maintain their status. I don't think think that's particularly good. Now, uh, the way that I see that we we could do this is in franchising everyone in, on the planet and giving them a say because someone in uh, in sub-Saharan Africa has no say, no chance whatsoever in an upwardly mobile um, uh, system. Whereas a person living in New York City on uh, you know Fifth Avenue or whatever, well, they've got plenty of chances to um, to earn uh, earn more money and have upward mobility. So if we give people equal chances and we get capital to flow to those people who might have new ideas, profound um, infrastructure growth in areas such as Africa. Uh, I think then that we'll protect ourselves uh, to a greater extent against things like terrorism. And also, if you don't concentrate the wealth, but you allow the wealth to be spread out uh, to those areas of the world, um, those other areas. And I'm not saying giving it away. Uh, I'm talking about having investments. The World Bank and the IMF and all the other um, uh, organizations that uh, are lending to these um, com- uh, countries, uh, it's 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 not been working as effectively. So that's why I think you need more than just loans from the first world to the third world. You actually need uh, countries that have institutions that are strong, and that means the state number one, and strengthening those areas, those countries that have stronger states. Because what happens is when you loan to those, uh, you know, as John Perkins said, um, and others have said. When you loan to those uh, countries, uh, the uh, it's always there's corruption involved, and the the, the people in the um, who control the government tend to get a larger percentage of the pie, yeah, and then yeah, they don't yeah. look out for the interests of their people, and it's a disaster. And that's yeah, why yeah. I came to the conclusion that if we want to solve all these overarching problems through, since we have uh, what I call a mandatory social contract, or or others have uh, you know called the social contract in sociology where we all agree to uh, give ourselves to society in exchange society gives us something back. Right now that isn't happening in um, those countries. And, and the end result is because of our interconnectedness, um, we're more susceptible now to a die-off than we ever have. So that's kind of w- the way I, why I wrote the mission statement for humanity and why I ended up thinking, for example, in one of the, pieces, one of the points is that we have minimum um, health care standards for all individuals throughout the world. And that, that is true and dear to my heart. I, I, I really think that we need to be spending more um, resources on uh, the health care for um, all 7 billion people. Yeah, basically, basic needs, really. Just, right. Yeah. There's a, I got an echo going on here. Do you know why, Darren? What's going on? Anyways, uh, I do want to talk about because you're, you're you it did make me think about uh one world government in a different light like we've talked about this on the show before right usually when you mention one world government or new world order or whatever it's a very negative type conspiracy connotated phrase but if we if we look at it in a positive way like what you're talking about it seems like in the future in a hundred years or something you could envision a future where we use uh whatever smartphones or some sort of uh some sort of uh, cryptic system to actually vote for things like they did back in Greece. I mean, there's nothing stopping us. Uh, well, I shouldn't say there's nothing stopping us, but there is the potential for an interconnected uh, global government for a positive 
uh, future, right? Now, um, you know what? Again, my conclusions, uh, Warren, I want to stress this, is that I came to the conclusion that this was probably one of our ways that out of this predicament, the human predicament, uh, because uh, right now um, I just don't see a climate change agreement. Robert Stavins at Harvard out, out said, and it's on our website too, uh, we don't have the institutions uh, currently in place to make a a climate change agreement possible. Now, he made that in June. Maybe he's changed his mind. I don't know. But I haven't. Uh, I know that. I I don't think that uh, we have the right institutions to resolve the major problems in the world. So what I came to the conclusion after backtracking, and as I told uh, some people, I gave a talk uh, amongst world federalists. I said, well, we have something in common. It's just that you started with the idea of a world government. I I ended with the idea of a world government because I don't see any way out. And I'm, I'm listening. If anyone has any um, ideas out there how to um, solve the human predicament, um, please let me know. Email me or whatever because I'm all ears. But I think after 12 years of trying to solve these problems with current nation states where the United States and you know the recent um, Citizens United case where it basically gives corporations carte blanche to control the coal control Congress, you can clearly tell that, for example, the tobacco industry doesn't care about um, someone in Africa or Southeast Asia getting lung cancer. All they care about is profits. Well, I'm a little different. I care about all the people of the world because of my own self-interest. I think it's in my self-interest uh, and that's where the alignment has come into play for the first time. It's in our, all of our self-interest to make sure that everyone in the world is, has minimum uh, levels of uh, a standard of living, including health care. Until we do that, um, we, we're, we're susceptible to more unfortunate situations with um, terrorists such as al-Qaeda or ISIS. Um, and, uh, and, and unfortunately we are seeking military solutions to those problems when what we should be doing instead of, um, instead of exporting, um, the, uh, guns and arms and that we do, why don't we export the constitution of the United States? Well, or start following don't, it here. <laughs> yeah. Well, don't, yeah, or start, yeah, exactly. Start following or, it there. And by it. the way, I just want to point out, I'm not, I'm not in favor of, uh, blindly, um, applying the U S constitution. What I am in favor of is in, in a liberal democracy with the bill, with a bill of rights. And, uh, because every, the start of everything is unique. I think the constitution has one flaw according to the Supreme court, um, that unlimited, um, spending on candidates, um, is a, uh, is a constitutional. And uh, of course there are individuals out there, including some individuals in California where I live who are trying to get a movement started to, uh, to create another amendment, um, to protect against, uh, uh, corporate uh, takeover of Congress. And unfortunately, uh, I think that's too little too late because by the time you get that done, it's another five years, 10 years have been, have gone by and nothing's really been accomplished on climate change. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or other issues too. I mean, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So don't you think that, that going to some sort of one world system just opens the door for, I mean, like, Look at how fucked up all the systems that are running around the world right now and how inevitable corruption is and how money and backroom deals and monopolies and it shit just seems to get out of control. And don't you think, like, isn't that just going to compound that all that into one horror, horribly corrupted 
system when you just throw all this shit into one giant snowball? Well, that's a, that's a good point. And uh, I've thought very carefully about this. And, and here's what um, I'm advocating, because right now we're in such a predicament um, that, uh, you know, I think that we've got to find a real solution and not a pseudo solution. So when you bring that up, it is a concern. But I would also answer, because I do this in my book, is uh, you've got Assad, you've got uh, uh, Kim Jong-il, Kim Jong-un, you've got, uh, you know, it goes on and on about the potential out there for these leaders who now have sovereignty that is protected, national sovereignty, protected because the United States or or, uh, or Western Europe or Canada or wherever you live, those societies that have constitutional and liberal protections to them, uh, they don't want to start another war. President Obama with ISIS has, you know, it appears to me, I don't know if it's, you know, appears to everyone else, but it appears to me that um, there's a little reticence to deal with ISIS. Um, and uh, it, again, I think the dealing with ISIS is more on a sociological level than it is on a military, militaristic level. Uh, and uh, so that's why I'm proposing this. So when, now getting back to your question on, well, doesn't this open the, up, this up to, and what I use is Big Brother and George Orwell, is if you have uh, one government you know, ruling the world, are you going to open yourselves up to tyranny, to exploitation, to dumbing down of the world as, uh, you know, whether it's... Uh, core. Yeah, exactly. What the most important thing is you got to realize is you're, you're not really looking at reality. The interconnectedness of us today, and this is what I write in the book, is we have – I have a formula. We're 10 to the 10th more interconnected than we were. That's 10 to the 10th mm. in my formula and what I use than we were um, at the beginning of, uh, uh, of human existence. That means we spent 99% of our existence – um, in small group, 100, 150 uh, tribes, uh, hunter-gatherers, et cetera, um, it's only been in the last 100 years that we've been so interconnected um, that now uh, from a sociological standpoint or anthropological standpoint, um, you're dealing with unknowns. You're just dealing with so many unknowns and how to deal with um, individuals on such a high level that, again, I worry about what's called resonant social pathology, where, for example, in 9-11, you had 19 terrorists who um, just went ahead and um, created, literally created so much resonant pathology. A war was created that it got, it baited the United States into doing, into to, to torturing people that we shouldn't have been torturing. And the Feinstein report just came out. So I, you know, the evidence is quite clear that it occurred. So what I'm advocating with a one world government is we have a better chance, I believe, in dealing with humanity with really careful liberal uh, principles, liberal dem democratic principles, not in the liberal that Rush Limbaugh says, but liberal in the political science sense, where you have you have individual bills of rights, protections that are very important. Let's take that time now. Let's take 10, 20 years to carefully craft it like the forefathers of the United States did to carefully craft a very solid um, structure for the future of humanity, whether it's a global government or whether it's global governance or whatever it is. 
and then protect against those um, just maniacal leaders, Hassan, you know, Hussein, um, uh, Assad, all those leaders who have no have absolutely no respect for human dignity. And that's what we're about. We're, you know, as I said, I started uh, starting a, a nonprofit and we're global humanists. We put human dignity and decency ahead of everything else. And I'm sorry, it's ahead of nations, nation states. It's ahead of everything. As a doctor, I took a Hippocratic oath and I am going to put human dignity and human health ahead of everything else. And I believe also that our constitution, uh, you know, if Jefferson we're alive today. I, I tend to think from what I've read that that, uh, that he he would be, um, you know, scratching his head going, how are we going to get out of this mess? Oh, I think the founding fathers would just be appalled if they could take a look at where we're at today. Yeah. I think I, I do agree with you, though. It's a noble cause. And I, you know, how can you argue what you just said? I mean, that's pretty... It's pretty good. It just it's an uphill battle. I mean, getting through the you know the military industrial complex and all the money that's being made to avoid that scenario. It's it's uh, it's very. I mean, I feel like there has to be some sort of collapse before that can actually happen. And not even that. It's like when you get right to that cusp of where you're almost there. It's like a, a coin toss on whether or not you get thought police or you know better. Whether yeah. it's better or worse, yeah. it could go either way when you get to that crossroad. Yeah. I think that if the protections that are put into place, like, for example, if you look at the United States of America, you can see that for 200, you know, plus years, uh, we, I think the overall constitution has held up pretty well. There are some, I get, again, there are some things that our forefathers couldn't predict, such as the rise of the corporation. Uh, they couldn't predict it. And so rulings have taken place by the Supreme Court. Uh, that basically have favored uh, uh, protections for corporate involvement in politics. Uh, you know, you can either get an amendment or you can either create a stronger, more ar- overarching view. The uh, Well, you bring up uh, some in, in important um, uh, aspects that we all need to think about. And the important aspect you both bring up is, well, you just don't know if it's going to happen. Well... The first thing we've got to do is this, is we've got to get past the notion that we're a heterogeneous, um, separate, multiple civilizations. Uh, If we get past that, I think we can work harder. And if you don't believe that we're past that, just take a look at how many times you talk to your neighbor and how many times you actually talk to someone from India who's uh, about your credit card. Okay, and think of all the um, times that you're dealing with people outside your country. I'm not saying that the country, that countries and nation states are, um, how, how should I put it, not necessary, but they're obsolete. Um, they've outgrown their usefulness, uh, and now because of the the uh, internationalization, like for example, uh, if you look at what you, if you can think of. Five or six things that you aspire to do in your life or be a part of as far as whether it's corporate, state, nation. Um, Most kids will like McDonald's. uh, They'll know more about McDonald's because they see commercials every day, which is a multinational corporation. Then they will about uh, learn more about McDonald's and about the Constitution of the United States because they see more commercials. So it's a reality that we have to face and that we've all been a part of. And I think what I'm just pointing out is I think – 
that my from my studies, and again, I, I, I open up to the scientific community to make the determination, but from my standpoint, I think it's quite clear that we've surpassed the issue of, okay, you're a United States citizen and I'm a, you know, Iraqi citizen and I'm a Canadian citizen. And I think we surpassed that to the point now where, and if you look, take a look at illegal immigration and how President Obama is working with illegal immigrants because they provide um, jobs and they are, they're just wonderful people. The people that I've met uh, all throughout the world, whether they come up and work for us in this country, wonderful people. And all they want is a chance at the American dream. Can you blame them? No, not at all. It's, it's like- so if you have an, an issue of, okay, you know what? Uh, uh, let's cut off our borders. Let's make the United States safe. That type of thinking in the 20th century is no longer present because you have the internet and the internet and you've got uh, Chinese co- corporations, you've got American corporations. Sony, I don't even know what, co- what country Sony's with. I still haven't figured that one out. Starbucks <laughs> is another. You know? yeah. No, it's like uh, what Ronald Reagan said. Remember, uh, I know the solution to this problem that you've got. It's if we we're all, I wish I could do like Ronald Reagan's accent though, if we we're all facing, facing the threat from another world. <laughs> That would bring us all together. Absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, Darren, what do you got for us here, buddy? <laughs> so how long has your book been out? Uh, it's just come out in the last uh, couple weeks on Amazon. Um, it's three series, uh, or we should say editions, the um, theoretical edition, the uh, abridged and the oh. uh, essential concepts. And, oh, that's what you mean by the, uh, the series? Yeah. Okay. The, the editions, the first edition is a design for um, policymakers, sociologists, political scientists. Uh, the bridge version is more in line with the college-educated, high school-educated individual. And the essential concepts is the walk-around version. It's a couple hundred pages that, um, with graphs, charts, et cetera, that uh, more or less get to the point of – where where uh, where I'm trying to go um, with uh, with the super civilization? Have you thought about coming out uh, with an audiobook at all by any chance? Uh, no, I haven't. But uh, all is open. It all just depends on what uh, what the what readers feel about my current uh, books. So yeah, yeah. If, yeah. if 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 they sell, great. Then we'll do audio versions. Absolutely. Yeah, audio is definitely increasing in, in popularity. Yeah. Do you anticipate any blowback being pro New World Order? Have you got any yet? Eh? Uh, well, it's interesting. I think if people were to sit down and read the book and read the theory closely rather than just assume, oh, he's about a global government, Yeah. Uh, that maybe look at the arguments that I make and, and maybe you'd be surprised at the reason why I came to that conclusion. Um, it's not that I set out to do, come to that conclusion. I just came to that conclusion because I'm looking for solutions. I'm just, uh, I'm just looking for solutions. I'm an everyday person. I'm an emergency physician, but I just happen to spend a lot of time all my free time reading and uh, looking at uh, uh, you know evidence and looking at, at uh, people diplomatic uh, diplomats opinions and then arriving at my own conclusions after I've spent all that time and then I'm hoping just to spur on um, uh, more talk and discussion about what we're going to have to do to look at the human predicament and uh, the possibility of a human. 
catastrophe with a self-annihilation. I think that's real. Yeah, no, it's it's great to get the conversation started and get people thinking about it. I mean, it really does. It got me thinking about, uh, yeah, they, we've talked about it before. Like I said, the positive aspect of a global, because I don't, I don't feel like we're stuck in a nation state here too. I mean, we're in Canada here and like, I, I love people from all over the world, right? We, we, uh, I don't feel like, I feel like the nation is holding us back a bit too. So I don't know. I'm well, not. see, that's a, that's a thing right now. We're talking here. We're making the point is that we're talking. I'm an American. You're Canadians. I, I don't even care. You're human beings. And that's what I put first is that we are all now faced with a, with a major problem in the 21st century that, that our ancestors never faced. They faced problems and that their problems were huge. I mean, they were massive, but they were different. They were regional. They were local problems. They were problems in which they didn't really – couldn't solve all of them because there were, you know, people, if you look at in the 19, early 1900s, people were dying off in the ages of the 30s and 40s. We're living to be 70s and 80s right now. So our, our, our uh, kind of, our challenges are completely different than what our ancestors were. So our challenge require, our challenges require institutions that are um, consistent with what the challenges are. And, and by the way, I, I'm sorry. I really, I can take this up again. I have to be in the hospital here in a couple minutes. So I, I think my, uh, I think I had to um, be, uh, be out of here at 830. Okay. So well, no I, can yeah. back. I can come back tomorrow if you want to put another uh, few minutes into this. I'd be happy to. I just, unfortunately, I can't be late for my patients. All right. Well, we'll be in touch. Yeah, we'll, we'll let you go and we'll be, in, we'll be in touch. Thanks. Thanks a bunch. Please. Yes, it was awesome. I, I, I'm very honored that you took the time to listen to me and that we've had some really good discussions. And, and uh, I, I'm, I'm excited about having been on your show and I'm happy to come back anytime. Great. Thanks a lot. We'll link to all your, your books and everything in the show notes and we'll send you a link. Awesome. Thank right. you so much. Thanks. Right. Politicians are put there to give you the idea that you have freedom of choice. You don't. You have no choice. You have owners. They own you. Illuminati. Educated people capable of critical thinking. They're not interested in that. That doesn't help them. Illuminati, you'll never take control. Your new world order will lead to none at all. We are Wake the fuck up, America. Elite control your lives with fear. Just staring you with terror on your screen. Telling you what to believe. But who benefits from panic, hunger, and greed? That's how they feed upon the masses like a fucking disease. The only answer is to rise up, get above your fucking knees. Tap into your inner beam like a 33rd degree. Unplant the mental seeds for men to break free of an evil greed. You can't see, cause you ain't believing me. But I'm telling thee that television ain't true. Just professionally manufacturing a fallacy and balancing your talents we tragically waiting for things to fucking change magically and mystically rewrite our fucking history this ain't no bullshit mystery i'm locked to prison with the key it's in your mind as the ones to see illness in America. They have to. There's too much money in it. Illuminati, you'll never take control. Your new world order 
Yeah, they took away your intellect and stripped you of respect. So now this is what you're left with. What's the symptoms of distress? Which prescription is the best? The definition of misdirection. Doctor's orders, get some rest. This hocus pocus diagnosis got you focusing on stress. These politicians ain't no benefit. The description of the devil. Grab your pistols and get ready, cause they're trying to play Geppetto. Yeah, they're trying to pull the strings. Have us jumping through the rings, but they treat us like we're property. We're fucking human beings, man. Things are not the way it seems. Rarely see the American dream, cause it's more like a nightmare fight there. Yeah, I'll do that when a vote counts. Yeah, I'll do that shit when they don't doubt. Until then, we're all anonymous on a mission going all out. money in healthy people and there's no money in dead people the money is in the middle people who are alive sort of but with one or more chronic conditions that puts them in need of celebrex or nasonex or valtrex or lunesta 